Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Markets. I'm Carol Masser, in for Bonnie and Paul. Well, this story has been among the most read uh, since it hit the Bloomberg terminal and has to do with the cruise industry. And basically, we know this is an industry that has been hit hard, obviously, by the pandemic. We've also seen some of the horror stories as patients tried, uh, patients, I should say, as travelers and passengers tried to get off the ships during those early days of the pandemic. Well, someone who's been reporting on the industry from day uh, from day one is Austin Carr, technology reporter at Bloomberg News. He joins us right now on the phone from Los Angeles. His latest story talks about not the passengers, but the members of uh, cruise uh, and the crews of uh, the cruise line that had to really stay on the ships uh, for many weeks, months, uh, until they could get off uh, safely. Austin, good to have you here with us. Um, tell us about your story, because you do look specifically at the crews that were kind of left behind after the passengers left. Totally. Um, so at the beginning of the pandemic, when the cruise industry was hit, there was so much emphasis on the passengers and the struggles that they had to both deal with outbreaks aboard several ships owned by operators like Royal Caribbean and Carnival, um, but after they gone off, there was sort of a, a class of forgotten people, the, the crew workers, all the sort of lower paid uh, folks for often from poor uh, countries abroad uh, that really struggled to get home due to changing uh, health rules, uh, evolving travel restrictions, borders being struck down, uh, shut down. And there was tens of thousands of them stuck at sea. Uh, and, and this story sort of explores some of the difficult conditions they had to face. Uh, be they sort of the uncertainty of when they were going to get home and see family, uh, being stuck in small uh, cabins, uh, in some cases without windows, um, and uh, their pay being cut off, and just living in a very highly regimented uh, lifestyle due to the pandemic that for a lot of them resulted in uh, some mental health issues, uh, depression and anxiety and stress over things like their salaries being cut off and wondering when they were going to get back to work. And this story explores some of those uh, sort of cases, the conditions aboard ships, as well as, uh, unfortunately, tragically, the suicides that resulted uh, in certain instances on these cruises during repatriation. Well, and Austin, this is something, you know, with your reporting that really just always stands out in that it's not just broad strokes. You actually get into the individuals and tell their stories. Give us one of the stories uh, of one of the workers from uh, one of the cruise ships and, and what they went through and, and what the outcome was. So one of the families that we'd focus on is the uh, Soller family. Uh, the the uh, a crew member named Joseph Salzer uh, was on a ship called Carnival Breeze. Uh, he'd been transferred a number of times during the pandemic in an attempt to get home to Hungary, and he really epitomizes uh, what a lot of the cruise industry crew members went through, which was yeah these these isolated. Uh, effects living in a on a ship where you were stuck in your cabin with mandated curfews, limited time in which you could go outside. For example, this worker might be able to leave for about an hour a day for breakfast, but it might take 45 minutes just to get a coffee due to understaffing and, and sort of social distancing rules that made lines very, very long. Um, you know, uh, people just talked about the monotony of living at sea. They, they felt like prisoners. They felt like cargo with, with sort of no ETA. And uh, ultimately, at some point in this long journey, endless journey home, 
Joseph uh, Salzer hadn't been seen for several days. He missed daily temperature checks. He hadn't responded to texts from friends, and they sent uh, crews to check on him. And unfortunately, they they found him uh, hanged inside his uh, cabin. And the story explores not just what led to that tragedy, but how it affects a family at home having to deal with a death in international waters with the company that sort of uh, incorporated with entities all around the world. Right. And if anybody's been on a cruise ship and, and like you have done some reporting, you know, on, on Carnival specifically, you know, it is a global workforce. I mean, that's kind of what makes it unique. And it's an opportunity for people around the around the globe. And, and in particular, people, you know, who might have trouble finding jobs in their home country uh, and are just looking for a start somewhere. It's an opportunity for them. So it is a global workforce. And you're right. So what I want to get to is also a couple of things. First of all, what what do the cruise ship companies say as a result of this? Because it wasn't just, it seems like, one suicide, but it seems like multiple suicides from some of uh, the crew members. So first off, they, they do highlight how immensely difficult uh, uh, it was to get these crew members home. I mean, it's one thing to offload uh, American passengers at an American port and charter them flights home. But what about workers that are from places like Ukraine and the Philippines and, and India? It was a very logistically difficult time getting them home by land, air, and sea, especially with the CDC changing a lot of uh, health processes uh, from, from you know sending people home in U.S. waters, uh, but also abroad, just a lot of borders being shut down. And uh, just, you know, concern about COVID being spread through these cruise ships. Uh, So that's number one. And then second, um, they do emphasize that they tried to take care of their workers as best possible. They provided them with uh, free food, housing, uh, paid for all their transportation, getting home, provided them free Wi-Fi and even counseling services uh, by phone. So you could call if you had sort of mental health issue, you would call a hotline and hopefully get in touch with a trained therapist. Um, the issue is, I, I suppose, that when we talk to workers, they've actually felt concerned about these types of hotlines. They were worried that if they sort of disclosed emotional issues, uh, that they were dealing with anxiety and stress and depression, that that might jeopardize their employment somehow with each right. cruise ship uh, going forward. So it, it was just also uh, just one of the interesting threads of the story is just how taboo of a subject it is among seafarers that they sort of pride themselves on salty toughness and don't want to admit that they might be dealing with just a a very difficult, isolating, trying experience, in many ways, a more extreme version of what we're all going through with lockdowns at home. Hey, just got about a minute or so left here. Um, To be fair, also, I feel like um, Austin is, you know, mental health was not a top of mind issue for, I feel like, the broader public and certainly for the broader corporate world. You know, most were thinking about physical health. And I mean, I just, I've had a lot of conversations too with CEOs that, you know, the, the thing that everybody realized is that it wasn't just a physical toll, but a mental uh, wellness toll uh, as well. And I feel like the cruise industry um, and certainly the cruise employers kind of went through that uh, realization as well. Just got about 40 seconds here. Absolutely. That's such a good point, Carol. And uh, one of the psychologists that we talked to for the story just called that sort of a pandemic within the pandemic. In other words, there's been such focus on some of the deaths that happened directly through COVID, either due to infections or, uh, uh, or otherwise. And, and this is just also some of the ancillary effects that we have to deal with, being isolated at home 
And these cruise ship workers really reflect that. If you, you've been dealing with that at home, you might really enjoy the story because it talks about some of the trials that they went through and challenges just dealing with that uh, mental health and depression uh, at sea. Well, it's another round of great reporting by you, Austin. Thank you so much. Austin Carr and really balanced there, technology reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from Los Angeles. Check, check him out, by the way, at uh, Austin Carr on Twitter. One thing that this year, and I hope uh, we talk about and do a lot more about next year, and that is reaching out and really, especially when it comes to the financial sector, getting into those underserved communities. Our next guest has some thoughts on that. Darren Williams, the CEO of Southern Bank Corp, joining us on the phone from Arkansas. Uh, Darren, nice to have you here on Bloomberg. First of all, set the set the uh, stage for us. You're talking about CDFIs, Community Development Financial Institutions. Remind our audience, uh, for those who may not be familiar, what they're all about. Sure. First of all, Carol, thank you for having us You're on. You're welcome. Uh, CD- CDFIs, or Community Development Financial Institutions, are uh, they can be banks, can be credit unions, loan funds, and even venture funds. But we agree it's a designation by the Department of Treasury, and 60% of our activity must take place in low and moderate income census tract communities. It's a public-private partnership. We receive um, uh, support from the government to ensure that we actually provide access to capital and credit in areas where they don't traditionally flow. If you think about uh, in America, the number of banks and financial institutions have traditionally have, have significantly declined uh, in low income, often minority and rural communities. And so we're filling the gap. We're kind of the financial first responders for communities that don't have access to traditional capital and credit. And first of all, I do want to point out and remind everybody that uh, you were part of the Bloomberg 50 uh, this year, which is really just individuals who stand out from all walks of life, all aspects of our world in terms of the impact that they are you know, making on our world and changing things um, for the better. So having said that, um, tell us how this can be a, a game changer for especially those underserved communities. Well, well, first of all, Carol, I'm honored to be a part of Bloomberg 50, and, and that's a recognition that really is deserving of the entire CDFI industry and the minority depository industry. Uh, during this pandemic, we saw um, these low-income, underserved, often minority communities being left behind when access to uh, federal stimulus programs, for example, the Paycheck Protection Program, which put dollars in hands of businesses to keep their employees uh, on the payroll. Uh, unfortunately, many of these small businesses in underserved and rural communities don't have access to traditional banks. One, because many of those banks have, uh, have abandoned those rural and small communities, so they're not there. Right. Uh, but also because, also because you know, typically small and minority businesses uh, just don't have that type of relationship with, with banks. And so we worked uh, with the administration and with Congress to ensure uh, in the first round of Paycheck Protection Dollars, there was a carve-out of, of money, uh, $30 billion, that, uh, out of that $650 billion that would be set aside for CDFIs and NDIs so we can make sure that those dollars get to those small businesses that often don't have access to additional capital and credit. And so with this latest round of Paycheck Protection Dollars and this latest stimulus package, I'm proud that um, the Congress and, and, and the administration has seen fit to inject about $12 billion into the CDFI and minority depository uh, banking uh, and financial services space. So I got to ask you, we're a trillion dollar economy. I still feel like that's significant amounts of money. But when you see the stimulus packages that come down, when you see the initiatives that come, generally speaking, from the big financial sector, they're still not doing enough, are they? 
Well, clearly, there's much more that can be done. There's a huge disconnect between what you see uh, on Wall Street and what's happening in Main Street America. Of course, in your most recent segment, uh, before I came on, you're talking about the gains in Wall Street. Uh, you talk to the folks who are in, in Main Street and rural America, they don't feel those gains. They don't see that. They don't feel that. They're being disproportionately impacted by COVID. Uh, they are the essential workers. They're providing and, uh, food and feeding the world, but they're not able to work remotely. They're having to put their lives on the line to continue to be essential workers to provide the things needed. And so we do need, desperately need access because many of these markets we serve, uh, Carol, they were struggling before COVID, right? So unemployment yes. was high in those communities. Uh, job losses were high in, the, in that community. And so uh, clearly, with the with the impact of COVID being disproportionately impacted and, and felt in those communities, we need additional support to provide you know, really a broad-based relief. Because as we get this uh, pandemic under control, it's important that all of the economy come back, uh, that we all you know build back better, as as as, as President Elect Biden talks about. Right. That must include these underserved rural communities. We cannot forget. Uh, rural communities uh, in the United States. Well, the only way we're going to close that wealth gap is by making sure that money gets to all segments of our economy. Uh, Darren, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Good luck and Happy New Year. Darren Williams, CEO at Southern Bancorp, part of the Bloomberg 50 and part of a successful effort to add $10 billion for community development finance institutions of that second round of Paycheck Protection Program loans. So I think it's safe to say that we are all thinking a lot more about the world of medicine and healthcare generally because we did see some disruption as a result, obviously a lot of disruption to be uh, quite honest, because of the pandemic, but also in terms of how we get healthcare uh, and thinking again about some of the inequities and the costs of it uh, because of COVID-19. But there's a lot more to think about and deeper plays here. Michael Ray is founder and chief executive officer at RX Saving Solutions. He's on the phone from Overland Park, Kansas, uh, joining us on this Thursday. Michael, nice to have you here on Bloomberg. How are you? And how is your Thanks, world? Carol. Yeah. How is good, your good to, good to be here? Yeah. How's your world considering uh, as we continue to watch some of these virus headlines uh, around the country? Yeah, you know, it's been good. I think, um, you know, as a, as a general statement, we saw uh, quite a bit of, of growth um, from a company standpoint this year. Um, as it relates to the vaccine, you know, we're looking at this as, as an employer ourselves. Uh, we're answering a lot of questions about uh, to our corporate clients uh, what this means, you know, when they can expect a vaccine and, uh, and you know, how we can help them. Well, what are you hearing on that front? I think that's one of the biggest questions. You know, we kind of lay people are like, well, when do I get the vaccine and how do I get it? Yeah. Especially since we know the logistics and the distribution of it is so tricky. Yeah, you know, I, I think that um, the Pfizer vaccine was especially tricky just with the temperature requirements mm -hmm. uh, that, that came into play, but the Moderna one uh, was a little more forgiving. I think that, you know, what we're starting to hear is just more frustration. Um, you know, 10 million vaccines have been shipped, 2 million have been given. So we're starting to hear, uh, you know, more questions about when is that going to hit mainstream? Um, why aren't they being given? Um, and I think that there's there's been a tremendous number of PR opportunities and, and probably not enough action. Um, I, I expect more pressure to be put on that from you know corporations and health plans and for that to change uh, very quickly after the new year. All right. So you expect we'll get some more clarity when it comes to getting it out. Hey, having said that, what about clarity when it comes to drug pricing? I feel like one of the great black holes is prescription drug pricing. And, you know, I thought the PBMs, the pharmacy benefit managers were supposed to make it all, you know, better. And I'm not so sure. I think there's many who would argue that it hasn't necessarily played out that way. Drug pricing, what changes or what are your hope for changes when it comes to uh, this year and maybe under a new administration? 
Yeah, uh, good question and something that we're, we're really dialed in on. I think that a lot of focus uh, over the past really four years has been put on things like rebates, most favored nation, drug importation, uh, things that have kind of, kind of gotten a lot of headlines but fallen flat from a productivity standpoint. To me, the, the bigger uh, piece that um, has not gotten headlines last six to 12 months but is going to be embraced by the new administration is breaking down data silos making data accessible to consumers, uh, making it shareable. Um, and really what you're going to see is that is going to be the key that lets private industry come in and really disrupt the status quo. It's going to allow consumers to be educated, empowered, and engaged with you know, the decisions that are happening that, that ultimately cost them dollars. Um, and that's going to be the biggest change in the market you know, in 2021. Uh, and I really think over the next few years, as more and more companies uh, technology companies uh, find cool new ways to help consumers make better choices. Well, tell me about that, because I do feel like and it's one of the areas that has lagged in our economy in terms of the medical world, the pharmaceutical world, really getting kind of with it when it comes to disruption in technology. Yeah. But I do think uh, the pandemic is going to change some of that as as myself, I'm speaking my book, that I've moved on to, you know, apps and platforms to check in and do different things when it comes to uh, the medical world. Tell us about what you guys are doing specifically and, and what are the changes that you're seeing in, in terms of driving down costs for employees, employers uh, as a result? Yeah, uh, great question. I mean, you know, the entire business uh, that we're focused on is helping consumers and employers help plan save money on drugs. What we've seen through this COVID period is an acceleration and adoption of, of our platform. Uh, we service uh, just about 9 million members today, and the use of our platform spiked. Um, people want to do more things digitally. They want to have prescription drugs show up at their doorstep and not have to go to a pharmacy where a bunch of crowded, you know, sick people may be. Um, so I, I think you'll continue to see adoption and acceleration in healthcare tech as a general statement, and certainly driven by some of the government bills, the transparency bills like 9915 and CMS 4190. Those are going to be big uh, market drivers in the Medicare market that will expand to the commercial market. Yeah, and we'll ultimately see whether the incoming administration kind of stays with some of the, the policies that the current administration revealed in late November when it comes to drug pricing specifically, which was certainly something they talked about uh, a lot, but uh, only getting to it uh, a month or so ago. Um, Michael, thank you so much. Michael Ray is founder and chief executive officer at RX Saving Solutions, joining us on the phone from Overland Park, Kansas. What a year, and typically the end of the year, New Year's Eve, it's a big day in a normal year for restaurants, but it's not going to be that way. In fact, restaurants are bracing for a New Year's Eve without much celebration after a year, obviously without much celebration. Let's get into it with our Elise Young, reporter at Bloomberg News. She joins us on the phone from Trenton, New Jersey. Um, Elise, nice to have you here. Tell us a little bit about the story you did with uh, your colleagues about, you know, kind of... I can't even believe like what this year has meant for the restaurant community and the bad news is far from over. New Year's Eve is a huge day for restaurants. Um, to give you an idea of, uh, of what it means monetarily, there's an Olive Garden in Times Square where people are willing to pay $400 <gasps> for the New Year's Eve celebration. Um, and uh, last wow. year, a lot of chains reported uh, that versus a typical night, they did 
Uh, Outback Statehouse did 48% more business. Uh, Olive Garden did 29%. Applebee's 18% more. It's it's huge. Um, one South Orange restaurateur, uh, South Orange, New Jersey restaurateur told me, on a typical New Year's Eve, they can make $20,000. Wow. Um, this year at Papillon 25, she said if they make $3,000, she'll feel lucky. Yeah, I mean, the whole idea of like takeout and ordering out, you know, I guess it's helped restaurants a little bit, but it's it's no comparison on a night like tonight where typically the prices are jacked up big time and we as consumers don't have a problem about kind of overspending because we're celebrating a holiday. That's right. Um Carlo Momo, who's um, part of the Terra Momo Group family, which mm-hmm. operates four properties in and around the Ivy League town of Princeton, New Jersey, told me that it's fun for the staff. New Year's Eve is fun, that the folks who come after seven or so tend to stay. Everybody's happy. Everybody has somebody something to look forward to. They're freely spending and they're generous to the staff. And that's simply not going to happen this year. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, and there's also curfews, right, in a lot of towns and cities that it, even for someone who might try and do something, I guess, even outside, um, there are rules that are going to restrict what they can do. That's right. In in New Jersey statewide, um, restaurant indoor dining must end at 10 o'clock, mm. which then runs into, well, New Year's Eve, how do you do a countdown at 10 o'clock? So some restaurateurs are uh, sending people off with uh, wine bottles or sangria at 15% off so that they can continue the party at home. Um, So there are some bright spots here. The uh, Terra Momo group, uh, for the first time this year, is offering a $150 advance uh, order in advance box that feeds four people. Mm. Um, And this is the first time they've done that. It's got foie gras, it's got shrimp, it has uh, ribs. Um, So there's, there's room for innovation too. Yeah, right, exactly. And we definitely, you know, it's been pretty impressive, Elise, when you think about some of those restaurants. I even know from those that we order online at home, restaurants that never did takeout, that all of a sudden they were, you know, kind of some of those higher-end restaurants, though. And people were, because they were stuck home, they couldn't go out, were were more inclined uh, to splurge. Um, When all is said and done, what's the restaurant industry going to look like post-pandemic? I asked some of the restaurateurs whether they can hang on and they said they have high hopes for the vaccine um, and they they think that they can get through the next three or four months uh, around the time when the general population will start getting vaccinations. Um, Some told me that they are, uh, they're doing drink specials. um, They're, they're publicizing exactly how they're sanitizing anything they can do. um, But they say, they're a little bit worried about this um, this new very catchy strain that seems to be in the U.S. from Great Britain. Um, so uh, they're they're also hopeful for help from Congress. 
I have to say there's a great chart in your story and obviously forgive me for everyone who's listening on radio but I'll just kind of walk it through and it's quiet night it's a survey a poll morning consult poll conducted December 4th through the 6th and most Americans have low key plans for this New Year's Eve and uh, at least you lay it out for us 44% are going to cook dinner at home 29% streaming a movie 20% consuming liquor small family gathering 19% 18% consuming wine and 17% are going to bake I think at least what I found kind of comical if you can do that in kind of a black year uh, or dark year um, is that there were two categories consume liquor and consume wine I love that that was breaking broken down uh, into two categories it's just a reminder I mean that has been one of the bright spots I feel like when it comes to um, kind of the dining out or drinking out you know people have been just kind of consuming that big time yes and what that chart doesn't show but is down in the text of the story just 7% of Americans intend to go to a restaurant for New Year's Eve. So think of that, 7% who can't stick around all night, who can't spend the way they want to spend, um, and the staff that's not going to be compensated that way and have a good time. Right. And as someone who reminded me who had been a waitress for a long time, they're like, it's these kinds of nights where people make a lot of money. It's a way for them to bank some money, you know, sock it away for those those days when it's a lot quieter. And it's that's not what's happening this year. Elise Young, great reporting. Thank you, Elise Young. She's a reporter at Bloomberg News with us on the phone in New Jersey. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.